be uh, continuing in our sermon series in the book of Psalms, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. And we're going to be in this again, I I think I mentioned this, uh, uh, through uh, Advent. So uh, up until the end of November, beginning of December, we're going to be walking through and we're just kind of picking different parts of the Psalms to kind of hit those things and to hit all the themes of the Psalms as we walk through these things together. Uh, And remember, SCALE, in uh, SCALE the Mountain, is an acronym looking at the different things that we want to emphasize. It's very... um, Hebrew poetry to use uh, uh, acronyms in this way, and so uh, uh, kind of highlighting those things. Uh, But uh, the S in scale stands for story, that we want to be about the story of God's people and uh, connecting our story to the story of the Bible. Uh, C stands for Christ, that all the Psalms point to Jesus as the centerpiece of the psalm. Uh, A stands for affections, our, our emotions and our will are determining uh, what, what does it look like for us to set our mind and our heart on the Lord, our emotions and our affections upon the Lord. L is for love, that we want to love God, we want to love neighbor, and we want to love God's law. And then E is for exaltation or worship. We, the, the, the Psalms are uh, the songbook of the people of God. That they are the way in which we worship the Lord together. And so the point of all of these things is to worship the Lord. So today we're going to be in Psalm 80. Uh, So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Or a smartphone, you can flip open your app to Psalm 80. We'll be walking through this psalm here together. Uh, Now, many of you know, uh, Whitney and I, we own an old house. And uh, we have a a rental right next door, which is also a very old house uh, and is mostly a disaster on the first floor. But but eventually we'll get there. Uh, But we have been, since uh, starting City Hope, and actually even before starting City Hope, we have been uh, seeking to restore this old house. And if you've never worked in restoring an old house, it's hard. Nothing's level. Things break. It's just old. And there are many times in seeking to restore something uh, like an old house where you just think, let's just level this thing and start over. Brand new would be so much better. Let's do something brand new. Like if we just didn't have to deal with the old stuff that was here and the ways in which previous owners tried to do things, and they were not very competent in doing things, and let's just start from scratch. Start from scratch would be so much better. Isn't that true in lots of areas of our lives, that we wish that we could just start from scratch and not have to deal with restoring something old? Many of us are longing for those things, right? Post-COVID, the pandemic, we're longing to have our lives restored to something that, that was pre that whole thing, right? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just erase that like it never happened? We can't really do that. Restoration post, uh, maybe for some of you, post 2016 and political upheaval in our country and all of the things that have been going on over the last few years. Could we just back, back the clock up a little bit and pretend like that never happened, right? Uh, uh, 
The West Wing is one of my favorite TV shows. And anytime I watch that, I'm like, man, could we just go back to that? That was nice. Like, there was a lot of controversy, but man, it was, it was a lot more civil. <laughs> uh, could we go back to that? Could we just erase things that had happened? Or maybe in your own life. There are areas of your own life, whether it's your marriage or your family, relationships, job, some breach has happened, some difficulty, and if we could just restore things, and yet maybe that sounds so hard that if we could just erase it and start over, that would be better. Really, this longing for restoration is a human longing since the Garden of Eden. That we're longing to have this good life with God and each other restored, and we don't know how to get there. We don't know how to restore these things. And so we spend our lives searching for ways to restore when we really just want to start fresh and we don't know how to do that. This restoration, unfortunately, for us to be restored has to start with where we currently are. We don't get to just erase our story. However complicated and difficult it is, we don't get to erase it. And yet this psalm, we're going to see, promises that God will restore us in the midst of our story. But to get to this restoration, I have two main things that I want to talk about this morning. That restoration requires repentance. And that restoration leads to relationships. So those are the two things we're going to kind of hold on to. That restoration requires repentance and restoration leads to relationships. So let's look at the beginning of this psalm, Psalm 80, 1 and 2. Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory to Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Show us your mighty power. Come to rescue us. Us. So, uh, a little bit of background to this psalm, mentioning three of the tribes of Israel. Uh, we believe this psalm is written uh, as the northern tribe is being, uh, the, the northern uh, part of God's people, Israel, right? The kingdom's divided between Israel and Judah. And the northern part of the, uh, Israel is overrun by Assyria. And so this is either uh, like kind of leading up to that uh, point or just after in addressing these uh, northern tribes. And so there is conflict in mind in the background of this psalm. So who does the psalmist address here? He addresses the Lord as our shepherd. The Lord as our shepherd. This is going to be really important as we walk through this psalm to remember that the psalmist is addressing the Lord not primarily as king, but as shepherd. Not to say that he's not seeing the Lord as king. Certainly the Lord is king over all. But he addresses the Lord with this more uh, uh, gentle address, shepherd. That the flock of God's people needs a shepherd 
who is gentle with them as sheep. This uh, metaphor of uh, sheep and shepherd runs throughout all of the scriptures. And I know you guys were in Psalm 23 over the summer uh, while I was gone. And, and it's one of the highlights of the Psalms looking at the Lord is our shepherd. And what does it mean for the Lord to be our shepherd? So we need to keep this in mind because as soon as we start talking about restoration... As soon as we start talking about this idea that there is something broken about us as a people or us individually, and we need the Lord to show up and fix things, we instantly have this little voice that comes up in the back of our head of shame that says, I'm really jacked up and beyond restoration. Like, I'm beyond restoration. Like if you were to go with me right now to the downstairs units at our house next door, you would say, this place is beyond restoration. You should level this thing and start over. And then you go upstairs to Serena's apartment and you'd be like, oh, this can be restored. Look at that, right? You can actually create something new here, but you have to care for it. And the reality is, if we're going to pursue the restoration that this psalm promises to us, we need to know that we have a shepherd who cares for us. Who isn't looking at you and saying, wipe it out and start over. And you're like, okay, I get that. But you don't actually know my heart. You don't actually know my past. You don't actually know my story. But the Lord does. And he says... I'm your shepherd. I will care for you, even when you wander away. And we're going to see this story of Israel is going to highlight for us the fact that they are pretty broken people like us in need of restoration. So, that's who we're addressing in this psalm, but what is the plea of the psalm? This, uh, verses 3 and 4 here are, or sorry, verse 3 here is the repeated phrase throughout the psalm. This is uh, sort of the refrain. Remember, these psalms were sung by God's people. So this is the refrain that was sung over and over again by God's people in this psalm. Turn us again to yourself, O God. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. This is really the theme of the entire psalm. Turn us again to yourself. Now, some of your translations, I know the ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, we've been in and out of NLT and ESV this summer in terms of the psalms. If you're in the ESV, uh, it, this turn us again says restore us again, right? And this word restore here has this uh, this sort of dual thing to it, and we're not quite sure, should we translate it restore, asking for God to restore us, to recreate us, to fix us, or is this a call for us to repent and to turn to God, right? The word can kind of mean both of those things. I think that both are in mind, as I said earlier, restoration requires repentance. We're going to talk about those things together. But it's this idea that we are calling on God to do something in us to turn us to him. We're calling on God to show up in some way. To make his face to shine upon us. To restore us. Now the middle of this psalm is going to walk through the reality of the story of Israel and why they need restoration. 
O Lord, God of heaven's armies, how long will you be angry with our prayers? You have fed us with sorrow and made us drink tears by the bucketful. Maybe you can relate in your own life to times in which you have prayed over and over again for God to do something to take away this sin that you keep running to, to heal some physical ailment or some emotional pain, something in your life to restore some broken relationship that is broken beyond repair, and you are broken and leaning upon the Lord and crying out to Him, and what you hear is nothing. What you hear is, my tears overflow so much that I've got buckets full and it's all I have to drink. That's what the psalmist says. You have made us the scorn of neighboring nations. Our enemies treat us as a joke. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us up from Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. This is the poetic language of the psalmist describing the way in which the Lord had planted Israel in this place. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. But now, why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it and the wild animals feed on it. This description of what God has done for Israel and the way in which Israel feels it showcases their story. If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Old Testament or the story particularly of the Exodus and them landing in the land, um, I'll give you a quick recap, right? God's people, God calls Abraham, this man, to come away from uh, the gods that he worships and to come into a land that he will show him. He doesn't actually show him where the land is or tell him where it is. He just says, follow me and come along. But he also promises that this people will multiply and yet also that they will be forced into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. That's exactly what happens. The people of God go to Egypt and they are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God finally delivers them from their oppression and then takes them and plants them in this land. And the psalmist says, they were like a vine. A vine that the Lord had cared for in a greenhouse and taken out and transplanted it in this land. He cared for it well and it grew. He planted it and it grew and it spread. Vines tend to do that, right? If you have vines that you like, that's great. If you have vines that you don't like, that's not so great, right? They just tend to grow all over the place. And so he relates this uh, the, the, the psalmist relates the story of Israel to this planting of a vine. And yet, he says, but here's the problem, God. Right? Remember, the psalms are so helpful for us because it's God's word to us telling us how we can talk to God. 
with honesty. And the psalmist says, Lord, here's the problem. You planted this vine. This wasn't our choosing. You chose us. You planted us here. And now you've taken away all the protection and you just are letting us be devoured. What are you doing? Have you ever felt that way in your life? Like, God, you called me to this thing. You called me to this job. You called me to this city. You called me to this marriage. You called me to this thing. I believe that you were the one doing it. But now look around. Are you asleep? Do you not recognize that you have taken away all of the protection surrounding me and I am just getting consumed? Where are you? You did this thing and now it feels like you left me out to dry. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, now, the question is, why is this happening? Why would God allow Israel to be destroyed by the Assyrians? Why would God allow these things to happen? Well, it's interesting, this vine story, this vine analogy, the prophets pick up on this as well. In Isaiah chapter 5, says this. Uh, hey, can you guys click back on to proclaim on that? Because it... Oh, there we go. Perfect. Thank you. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. This is, so, so the psalmist is describing their planting in Israel from his perspective. This is the Lord describing his planting of the vineyard from the Lord's perspective. I planted this vineyard. I planted it with the best vines. You're right. I did clear everything out. I made it great. This is the ideal place for it to grow. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges... And let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed. A place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. You see, the Lord is saying, I warned you. I took you out of a land of oppression. I took you out of the house of slavery. I gave you my law. I was your God and you were my people. I did everything for you. And you chose to worship the gods of other nations. You chose to oppress people within your midst. You chose injustice. You chose to wander away from my word and my law and to do whatever your wicked heart desired. What more could I have done? What more could I have done? 
I warned you. And not just like I warned you once. I warned you over and over and over again. I sent prophet after prophet to you, and you ignored them. You ignored all of them. Now, we have to be honest with ourselves. Often the things that we want restoration from in our lives, our sin has played a part in it. Not always. There's very real ways in which we not because of our sin, face real suffering and cry out to the Lord, where are you? It's something we actually looked at last week, right? In the psalm we looked at last week. The wickedness surrounding the prosperity of the wicked around us, right? And yet this psalm does focus its attention on the way in which our own sin and brokenness leads to places in which we need restoration. In some part, because of our own waywardness and sin, we're at a place in which we feel broken and alone and want restoration from things. And yet it's because we've run away from our shepherd. Yet it's because we've run away from God's law. It's because we've run away from his people and his word, those who would care for us, who would show us his ways. We've run the other way, and now we're saying, Lord, where are you? And he's like, well, I've been here, and you keep running over there. And we need restoration. So where are we going to go? Because this leads to uh, what feels very difficult, right? We desire restoration. We desire things to be restored and right in the way we are meant to live before God and others. And yet we keep rebelling against him and running the other way. And now the Lord says, I did everything for you. I don't know what to tell you. And we're stuck. So what is the answer to this? Well, the psalmist goes on to say, Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's armies. Look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, this son you have raised for yourself. This word come back is, is similar to the turn us again. Rather than it saying turn us, Lord, it's a call for God to turn. It's the same word, right? This is the beauty of the Hebrew language in the midst of this. It's saying you, Lord, have to turn to us. We know we've been wayward. We know our story. We can't get away from it. And yet our only hope is to cry out, God, would you come, turn your face to us, and save us even in the midst of our waywardness. Even in the depths of our story in which we are at a place of desperation and brokenness, and in some ways, it's because of our own sinfulness. It certainly is the case for Israel in this setting. And yet, Lord, we plead to you, would you come and take care of this vineyard that you have planted? Would you come and restore us? And then the, the, the metaphor switches slightly to this son that you have raised for yourself. Remember, Israel is called God's firstborn son. For we are chopped up and burned by our enemies. May they perish at the sight of your frown. Strengthen the man you love, the son of your choice. 
Then we will never abandon you again. Revive us so we can call on your name once more. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord, God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. The answer is that restoration requires repentance. A turning away from our sin and a turning back to the Lord. And yet, here's the, the, the rub of the psalm. We can't even do that. Do you, do you hear the cry of the psalmist? Turn us again, O God. It's not saying, we are people, turn around, get your life together. No, it's, God, we need you to turn us around because we can't even turn around. We need grace. We can't do it. You see, this story of God's people is a story in which we are in need desperately of grace because of our waywardness. We're in need of a Savior. And in fact, these dual metaphors of vine and son are picked up by our Lord Jesus himself. Christ is the true vine and the true son. Isaiah, after talking about the warning that God had given, goes on to say this. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will play, put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt and destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Restoration. This is a beautiful picture of the restored new heavens and new earth that we talked about when we were in the book of Revelation. This reality in which God will come and he will right all wrongs. He will restore the world in the way it's meant to be. A place of love and peace and kindness and community and not one of violence. This restoration will come, but it will come how? Not primarily through the people of God doing something, but through the Son of God coming and doing what you and I cannot do. By the true vine, the true son coming and living a life of perfect obedience in our place. Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus comes and he is 
the fully righteous one. He does bring justice to the poor. He is perfectly holy. And yet, you know what Jesus endures? He endures exactly what the psalmist says they are enduring. The wall of protection is broken down. He is placed on a cross. He is crucified by the nations. He bears the punishment that Israel is supposed to bear. Indeed, that you and I are supposed to bear. Not only is he the righteous son, the one who actually is not wayward and actually follows the Lord, but he is also the son that faces the discipline that you and I deserve so that we can repent. So that we can turn to the Lord and be restored. So that we can be granted forgiveness. So that we can cry out with the psalmist, turn again to us, make your face shine down upon us. I know, God, that you know my story. I know that you know you have given me all the things I need to follow you. I know that you know I still choose to be wayward. But there's one who went before me in my place, who's the true vine and the true son, and he faced the punishment that you and I deserve. And he said, I'm doing this in their place so that they can be credited with my perfect righteousness. If Jesus forgives, if you are looking by faith to Jesus and Him alone for salvation, then this, God's Word says, is true of you, that you are fully forgiven of everything, past, present, and future. God's outside of time. He knows all the things that you have done, are doing, and will do. And it says that Jesus was, was slain before the foundation of the world to pay for sins of real people like you. Meaning God already knew your whole story. You think God didn't know when he planted Israel in that vineyard, when he planted them down? You think he didn't know that they were going to mess it up? He knew exactly what he was doing. You think he didn't know when he placed you in this place, in this moment in time, in these relationships, in this job, with these challenges, that you weren't going to mess it up? He knew exactly what you were going to mess it up. And yet, he is a gentle shepherd who comes and says, come with me, wayward sheep, come with me. Just come. I'm going to bring you closer. Even in your waywardness. If Jesus really forgives, then we can repent easily and quickly. We are so afraid of repentance. We're so afraid of admitting that we have sinned and admitting to God and to others the ways in which we are flawed because we don't believe that Jesus actually forgives us. Somehow we've been convinced that if we just stay silent about our sin, it will go away. 
Like if we just are quiet about it, if, it just, if we pretend it doesn't exist, it just doesn't exist. But friends, we have something far better than that. We have a Savior who knows our story and says, come to me anyway. A Savior who knows everything about us and says, I love you. You're my people. I'm your shepherd. I love you. But to experience that restoration, we need to be honest about our sin and repent. Turn from our sin. And again, we're not able to turn from our sin apart from Jesus turning us. And so this call is not one to work hard at it, but one to cry out for mercy. Turn us again. Restoration requires repentance. But restoration also leads to relationship. You see, the point of this psalm, the whole point, right? What does he say? Turn us again to yourself, O God. Make your face shine down upon us. See, the psalmist doesn't say, turn us again and then give us the nations. Give us the world. Give us the stuff that we deserve as God's people, as royal kings and queens of the earth. The psalmist says, no, 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 that is nothing in compared to what I'm asking for. I'm asking for your face, God. I'm asking for the far greater thing. I want you. You see, what we get in the gospel is not simply forgiveness of sins. Simply a clean conscience, no shame or guilt. Those are all true. We get all of that. And, and in fact, we get the whole earth, right? We will inherit the whole earth. The new heavens and new earth is given to the church for us to rule and reign and play and enjoy for all eternity. You get everything, right? You, anyone go outside this week and see the moon, the huge moon, right? It was awesome. We get the whole universe. It's ours for all eternity. And yet that's not the greatest gift we get and not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, I want you, God. I want your face to shine upon us. Because here's the thing. We could have everything in the universe restored to us. If we don't get God, it won't be enough. It won't last and it won't satisfy our souls because our souls were made to see and worship God. We get God. We started this psalm in looking at the Lord as our shepherd. It feels appropriate to bring it full circle to hear Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, 
and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Over the summer, I read uh, one of the books that I read and, and kind of slowly digested in processing the last few years and uh, on, on this sabbatical was uh, a book by K.J. Ramsey called The Lord is My Courage. We mentioned this book during our uh, monthly highlight on mental health awareness, and uh, she is a therapist, trauma therapist and author, and just phenomenal. It's really powerful. Uh, and, and the book actually just walks through Psalm 23 and takes each word and just kind of unpacks this and kind of tells her own story as well as uh, walking through what does this really mean for us. And in one section, it says this. Because Jesus, the good shepherd, relied on the reality of his relationship with God when tempted, as part of the flock, us, as part of his flock, we can risk receiving this as ours. We can risk receiving these truths, these three truths. We have nothing to possess, for we, are al- we already belong with and to God. We have nothing to protect, for we are already in Christ's protection. We have nothing to prove, for he already proved we are worth the cost of his life. This is the restoration that we get in the gospel. That we get restored to relationship with the one true God of the universe. Now this restoration which is so glorious, requires repentance. It means we need to know our story. We need to know our story like Israel knew its story like the vine. And we need to repent of the parts of our story that we need to repent of. We need to say, search us, O God. Search us and let us repent. Let us turn again to you freshly. Remember, we're restoring something, not starting brand new, meaning we don't get to erase our story, friends. It comes with us. We have been uh, talking, I know over the summer you guys uh, had some congregational sessions about our our vision, our five-year strategic planning and vision. We are praying, the elders, and uh, we're praying and, and thinking through vision, mission, hopes, strategic plans, all of that. Pursuing restoration together as a body and in the city, all of those things, it means nothing if we have no repentance as a people. It means nothing for us to go and offer the gospel to the world if we refuse to admit the places in us that need restored. So the very first thing we need to do in seeking all of that restoration of seeing and experiencing the Lord together and in our city is to ask God, what in us needs to be restored? Repenting. And then when we repent, we don't stay there. Right? Repenting is a turning away from sin, but it's a turning to something. We look to Christ, the true vine and the true son. We turn our affections to Christ and then we love God and our neighbors as a sign of repentance and keeping fruit with repentance. And then we worship Him. We exalt Him. We enjoy Him because restoration leads to relationship, which is the whole point. Okay, we're going to end 
This morning, as we have been, we're going to recite a portion of this psalm together because these psalms are meant to be read together in community and even sung together. We're not going to sing because I can't sing. So we're going to just repeat this together. We're going to repeat this phrase from uh, Psalm 80, verse 19. We're going to read this together. So let's, let's read this together. Turn us again to yourself, O Lord, God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you needing restoration. Desiring to have all things restored in us and in the world around us. And yet, Lord, if we are going to do that, if you are going to do that, you have to do something in us. You have to turn us again to you. Lord, I pray right now by your Spirit for anyone here and everyone here, God, that you would illuminate in us ways that we need to turn away from our sin and ourselves to you that you would spark repentance in us, that we would admit places in our story in which we have gone wayward, we have run from you, and you, our good shepherd, would call us by name back to you. And that you would make your face shine down upon us, that we would be saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.